Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Peace and light. My name is Erica Badu, also known as Badula Oblingada, also known as Sarah Bellum, also known as Manuela Maria Mexico. And right now you're relaxing with me, listening to The Fader Uncovered with my brother, Mark Ronson. I'm Mark Ronson, and this is The Fader Uncovered podcast. In this interview series, I'll be speaking with some of the most influential and groundbreaking musicians in the world, from genre-defining stars to avant-garde trailblazers, about their lives and careers. Each episode will be rooted in these musicians' iconic Fader cover stories, an institution that over the past two decades has told artists stories like no other. The podcast is a chance for us to talk about the past, present, and future, reflecting on their breakthroughs, diving into their lives when their covers hit shelves, and discussing what the future might hold now. And it's an opportunity for me to speak to some of the artists I most admire. This is The Fader Uncovered with Mark Ronson. I don't like Erica Badu. That's a phrase I don't think I've ever heard in the 25 or so years since Miss Badu has existed in the music space. I've heard the Beatles suck. We all know someone who likes to say, Kendrick, yeah, he's all right, but he's no Cameron or Rakim. Because the bigger the artist, the more haters you will have, even the great ones. If you Google most loved musicians and then Google most hated musicians, you will see a lot of crossover there. That's why it's so rare when someone can be extraordinarily popular. In Miss Bedu's case, over 10 million albums sold headlining arenas since 95, millions and millions of followers on Instagram, yet still have next to no haters. I feel like if there was a math equation to determine who the most universally beloved musicians are, it would go number of fans divided by number of haters squared. And I guarantee Erica would come out somewhere near the top. I guess maybe it's because she's made incredible music since she burst on the scene with On and On and forever changed the landscape of R&B. Maybe it's because she's one of the truest artists around, always doing exactly what she wants, never bending to the zeitgeist. I'd say the zeitgeist comes to her. She's also charismatic, super intelligent, a warrior of the spirit and the pen. I mean, she literally introduced the phrase woke to popular culture nearly 15 years ago in her song Master Teacher. She's also made some of my favorite records of all time, and Mama's Gun particularly is in my top five ever. She's graced the cover of The Fader not once, but twice. 
The first time was in the spring of 2001, right after Mama's Gonna Come Out, and she seemed both proud of the way she had brought a lot of people into the light, pointed the way towards freedom of thought and expression, but she also sounded weary, feeling the weight and expectation of being that spiritual warrior 24-7. Her second cover came 15 years later, because she's never not been one of the most important artists around. In this article, Badu is now both Zen mother and real mother, Still smarter than all of us, and sometimes still with the arched eyebrow, but now also with that playfulness, that silliness that we've come to know and love her for. Still a revolutionary, still delivering her message, but now also delivering babies. I didn't even know what the word doula meant until Erica Badu became music's most famous midwife and I had to Google it. At the time of the second Fader cover, she was also coming off the back of her wildly successful mixtape, which took the now iconic punchline of her classic Tyrone and spun it into a trap R&B song suite called Can't Use My Phone. You look at the arc of her career, all the way she's changed culture, all the artists she's influenced, the millions of people who adore her, me included, and she has such a singular career. And we are living in her world. Mama's Gone, that is really my favorite album of that whole era. And I know that there's so many great records that came out of that magic folklore period of Electric Lady. And there's Voodoo and Phrenology and all these stuffs. And I will stand in front of everybody else. And Mama's Gone, just when I heard it, it just knocked me out in a way that I think because there were so many other influences and in penitentiary philosophy and like the heaviness of it too. And it did things yeah. that not all the records really did. And I, I've never really heard you talk about making that record a lot and just where that was. I don't even know if you made it all in New York, you made it all around. So I'd love to just talk about actually like the process of writing that record just for a minute. Yeah, I, I made it all around, but the bulk of it in Electric Ladyland Studio where I saw you, you came, I think, while I was working on it once. To studio. I think we happened to be with Nika Costa, like in another room. So we were borrowing some of your musicians at times, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I worked on it in different places, but mostly Electric Lady Studio with the live band, everyone in the same room. Yeah. Questlove on drums, Pino Palladino from The Who on bass, James Poyser on keys. So just the trio and my guitar and percussion. Were you writing in the studio at the time? Were you actually writing as you went, or did you have the songs and then you brought them to the band? Uh, yeah, we were writing as we were going, you know. The style of writing is mostly impromptu, kind of. Yeah. yeah, we were writing as we were going all the time. And then the craziest thing that also stands out to me, other than the record, was that when the album came out, you had obviously changed the sequence at the very last minute. And I'd never seen that on an <laughs> album. And it was already on the CD, like what the name and the list of the songs and the order was going to be. And then right. there was this apology note, right, from you. Like, what, what was it exactly? I can't remember. Well, you know, in sequencing the album, I was going back and forth. Because as you know, when you're listening to music after you've finished everything, there's more listening than creating and I was listening, trying to really make sure this is right, you know, the sequence. And at the last minute, one night in Electric Ladyland, I said, okay. And I'd already turned in all of the assets, you know, the label wants you to turn in all that stuff really beforehand back in the olden days. Yeah. And um, 
I just changed it at the last minute and just wrote a note and gave it to the label. Just put this in there. Yeah. Fix it on the next pressing. Yeah. But that was crazy because, like, a lot of people don't even remember that, like, you would hand in an album, like, three or four months before because to press vinyl, all this stuff, like, these things were, like, etched in stone. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before, that an album would come out and then the CD that you put in did not match the name of the songs on the artwork and you, like, had to, like, figure this shit out yourself. I'm so sorry on behalf of myself and all of the others who... um were misled. No, I thought it was the, it was the coolest thing because that was also the most quintessentially like you like artist thing. Of course, it was like you know like when Prince put out Love Sexy and it's all one track. It's like only Prince would you like listen for forty eight right. minutes. Whole oh. thing, yeah. Thank you. And then also Questlove talks about it because I guess when you were making Mama's Gone. The Soul Quarians, that wasn't really a thing yet. It became the folklore, but really it was, you had brought in James Poyser, right? And then they were all working on, I don't know exactly, you have to tell me, it was like voodoo yeah, and then because um, of your record. Right, and all those records kind of came out the same year. It was Commons, mine, and D'Angelo's. But yeah, we were just all working in that space at the same time, and we would just artists who really admired one another and made sure we locked down all the rooms so nobody else could get in there. And we created our own like clubhouse spaceship. And uh, I lived there, you know, I lived in my room there and bathed out of the sink and all that kind of stuff. Which was your room? C. C. C C upstairs. Okay. Yeah, but, but I was working out of a couple of rooms at the same time. Yeah. But I was up there with Jimmy the Cat, who is legendary cat who either approves or disapproves your mixes if he approves he sits there on the console if he doesn't (laughs) he leaves as soon as the door opens yeah that's how we knew and then the amazing thing about electric lady is it you know it's just for people don't know it's Jimi hendrix's studio and then c is the upstairs which was sort of Jimi hendrix's apartment where he lived right right yeah c was where he lived do you know Jimi never actually got to record there I didn't know that. Yeah, he built it and he lived there and he worked, but he didn't actually record it. He never got to. Mm -mm. Yeah, I remember the one week that I was there and just it was like these larger than life legends like you common and people just like roaming the halls and it was pretty fucking insane. It was cool. Yeah. I don't know. Were you aware of the, did it feel like such a movement or something was happening in the water while you're there no no I was sophomore album I was real green I mean I just knew what I liked and I wanted to be around people who supported yeah you know my will and my and my ideas and and understood them and could complete my musical sentences and tell the same jokes and yeah you know just relate to the same shit yeah. and you know what we all had in common was the one you know, and James Brown laid it down and Parliament Funkadelic and James George Clinton handed it to us and we all inherited this one. And uh, it's an understanding. It's like like trees, you know, they have this secret uh, communication underground with these roots. Yeah. Was there a healthy level of competitiveness I mean I guess everybody was friends but also you go into somebody's room you're like oh and like kind of like hey Amir why didn't you give me that feel or like did you guys have any of that no because um 
when we were creating, we were creating on the spot and there was no other moment to think about. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. And we were in, we're in the moment and we were quite tickled for one another, happy for each other. And, yeah. You know. In that article, in that first Fader cover, you know, you can tell it's coming off the huge success of Baduism. Not only you, you know, along with D'Angelo and a few people bringing this whole new sound, but like you more than anybody became a bit of like this figurehead, like you were expected to not only be this musical figure, but this spiritual leader and this like public persona. In that article, you seem a little bit exhausted of the pressure of like sort of having that on you. That is that fair to say? Yeah, I think uh, maybe in that time in my life, um, you know, Saturn return, turning 29 or so or whatever, in my form as a Pisces, there's this thing I have called self-undoing. When, you know, the head wrap gets too big or the thing concept gets bigger than the intent, then I have to undo it. And I was just kind of in that place. And I think I'd shaved my head at that time. And, you know, I was just ready to shed things that no longer evolved me. And maybe I was in that state of mind. I could imagine I was. Did you live in New York around that time? Because I've always associated everything else as Dallas, but you were in New York. Yeah, I lived in New York from the blizzard of 1995. I still have the apartment there now, but I lived there solely from 95 to 98. And then I got a home in Dallas, back home. Also, because you talk a lot about like, people think that this is just a click and it's you wear a head wrap and we're all just sitting around, but like you have to be a warrior to live this lifestyle. Like there's definitely a sense of like a loneliness that it feels like you're a soldier, like at that time. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was hanging tight with Mutulu and Kanoon of Dead Prez and, and we were really trying to figure out, you know, ourselves and how we could be more helpful and of more service in the world. You know, you know, it, things I wear, it, they are things that I, are my favorite things and, that I like and, what I have on now is what I wear on stage. It's the life I am. And I'm becoming more and more comfortable with saying no. Yeah. Yeah. I think for some reason that all goes together. <laughs> I actually really love the second Fader article. I don't know how well you remember it, but it's really like... I do. It's just really beautiful. Like You obviously let the journalist into your life it seems like a really special period. It's like your birthday party. It's all yeah. these things going on. It's a picture of this like beautiful, just family situation. Yeah. And then of course the birthday party and stuff. Is that still an annual thing? Every year we missed 2020, of course. No, we missed this year. My birthday is in February. Yeah. So we landed the birthday in 2020 right before the pandemic. But I've been having it for about eight years in a row. We didn't do anything this year, but it was okay. We needed to be still, seemed like. Happy belated birthday, by the way. Thank you, my 50th. Because I also noticed that you don't really tour that regularly, right? Is that like the basically the one special time you get to do the shows? Regularly I tour. I, I've been touring eight months out of the year for 22 years. Really? It's the only thing I do. So March 13th was a monumental day when all the tours were canceled indefinitely. Yeah. And I had to quickly figure out something. And so I um, I built a live stream company and 
you know, try to keep it moving for the ecosystem that keeps us going, you know. The- those were amazing, those shows, because everybody was trying to scramble and figure out what to do. And you're set, I mean, I guess that's your home, right? Yeah. It was mm-hmm. just the best decorated backdrop thing I've ever seen. It was amazing. Thank you. And music, are you making a music? I mean, I know you're very sparse with how you put it out. All the time. Yeah, I'm making music right now. What kind of stuff? Club stuff. Things that are heavy and bass and delta wave, you know, kind of slow bassy, kind of heavy kick drum. I need that bottom for some reason. So I've been making yeah. a, lot, a lot of that. And uh, I just completed a meditation hour for... Headspace, which is a meditation app. I know it. Yeah. So mine should maybe be premiering sometime in in the next couple of weeks. Do they have music with it as well, or is it just a guided... Yeah, it's music. So I produced the 60 minutes of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Little Mellotron, a little MP. I was listening back to, you know, Worldwide Underground and New America, and and it makes so much sense to your DJ as well, because, you know, I've seen that. I think we've even DJed together a couple of times, but, like, those albums really are, like, the way that they're just sprinkled with these lines and phrases and things from these, like, classic hip-hop, they do feel like mixtapes. Like, that's what I've always loved about them. They're just so, like, dropping ding-ding-dong or doing the get money or whatever it is. (laughs) Like, I love the way that when you make music, I do feel like this is a DJ who can happen to just also like one of the greatest singers of our time and also the way that you also write the original stuff. Thanks. Thank you. Are you still DJing? I remember when we did that party together. All the time. Yeah. Yeah, I am. It's therapy for me. I never prepare the crates. Yeah. Yeah. What new music are you playing when you DJ? Just about everything. I play all of the beautiful new soul things, uh, Ari Lennox and... SZA and Summer Walker and some of those beautiful new things. Yeah. I love mixing genres and adding new drum loops, um, harps and arps and things into that kind of stuff, creating something new. And when I DJ, I usually have Rashad Smith with me playing the MP live. Yeah. So that we are creating, you know, and I have a hand sonic, like a little synthesizer. I remember when we DJ together because we did that song in New Orleans and then it was for that film. Yes. And that was so crazy because I remember we already had the track together and it was with Zig from The Meters was on drums and some of the Dakin guys. And you just came in and you're like, yeah, just throw up the track and I'll just like freestyle or something. And I remember so clearly like I was lying on the floor with my eyes closed like this and you just started singing and it was like, it was so emotional for me because I was like, oh, it's the voice. Like, it's the voice of my whole life that I've grown up yeah. with. And you're just like doing this thing over the track. I remember being so nervous that day when she walked in the studio. I can be okay at hiding it and it's my job. And from McCartney to Q-Tip, I've had my share of being in the booth with my heroes, you know, voices I've grown up with. But I also felt pretty good about this little groove I cooked up with my brothers in the Dap Kings and the legendary Zigaboo Motorista, the meters on drums. So she just asked me to let the track rip, and she got on the mic and started freestyling ideas as they came. I was lying on the floor of the studio, eyes closed, having an almost outer body experience as this voice, 
one of the most unique tones in all of music and the voice of some of my favorite ever recordings, started to grace this track I had helped create. The verses were really cool. They had this very metersy New Orleans groove, and she was doing all this cool call and response stuff, and I loved it. But then the bridge hit, and the chords got a little deeper, a little more soulful, and suddenly the melodic badu came out, and I melted inside. It was magic, her specific melodic sensibility mixed with her unmistakable tone. It was like the sound and feeling of all my favorite records in this little eight-bar section over a chord change that I had actually written. I was witnessing this moment of creation of her genius, only this time I was like part of the puzzle. While I was preparing to record this part of the podcast, I listened back to the song for the first time in a while. It's called A La Mode Least, and all those emotions and goosebumps came flooding right back. And then we went and DJ that night, and it was so great because you kind of DJed like how I'd expect you to. Like all the beats and the mixings were all on point, but you treated it a bit like an abstract mood board, like the way you brought songs <laughs> together. You know, like it was like a painting, and you would play like Diana Ross into something. It was like a very artful DJ set, is what I'm trying to say. I enjoy you very much too. Your taste, your selections, those smooth blends. You're just everything. You're a historian. You kind of intuitively move. Yeah. I really love that. Whenever anyone asks me what new music I'm listening to, like, I can never remember anything. My brain just goes like, bloop, like blank. So I'm sorry for asking you a question that I find annoying. But I'm always curious because, you know, when I DJ, if me and Q-Tip are DJing, like, I do try and stay aware of new stuff because I don't want to be like that old guy who seems like he doesn't care anymore. But I, I do have a hard time finding some of the new shit. But I think that that's cool that you embrace a lot of these new artists. I like a lot of shit. I mean, I don't know if it's new shit or not. It's new to me. You know, I, I make sure that I keep Thugger and Earl Sweatshirt and Sarai, Creative Partners and some of the fresher things inside because they are improvements on the design. Yeah. You know, kind of that we laid. Yeah. So it's it's like very inspiring to me. And it tickles me, makes me happy. You know, I have a son who's 23. Wow. I kind of look at it the same way. Like he comes to me with something. Yeah. That he's done, that he's made. And, you know, it's not about if I like it or not. And... You know, I've taught them to never ask me if I like it. Just ask people how it makes you feel. Because whether people like it or not is immaterial. You know, it's done. Yeah. It's, the shit is done. That's yeah. a really fucking cool way of thinking about it, too. Because I always used to think when the words... I, mean, I don't even know how long ago this is. I'm going to sound like such an old guy. But when the word hot... <laughs> when everyone started to substitute the word hot, like a hot record for being a good record. And it was like suddenly hot was like this vague word that like, okay, do, what do you mean it's like hot because it sounds like a hit? Or like, it's like, what about good? And that's why I always just tried to like keep it. <laughs> but then good is so subjective as well. So it's like, I, I don't I don't know if one's better than the other, but. Yeah, it's just kind of, it makes me feel like this or that. Or, ooh, this is like real blue. I like this light blues and things. Yeah. You know, just so that he's always inspired to continue to create. And I see the new generation of musicians, creators that same way. I want them to be inspired and be honest because it's not really about what they're saying. It's about that honesty. Yeah. And if I feel that, I like it. Yeah. It can be a hot record, but if I don't feel it, you know. Yeah. If I don't believe you, it's not the one for me. When you hear 
your influence in artists these days? Is it kind of like a nice acknowledgement? Like, oh, I hear what you're doing or like this kind of thing. Or you sort of like, some people don't hear it. Some people hear it and it's like tip of the hat. Yeah, I hear it. It tickles me. I'm thinking like, oh my God, these are my kids. These are like, these are what mama's gone spat out. They heard it. They internalized it. It's a language you know, that I thought only I knew. Yeah. You know. I remember when I was working with Amy Winehouse, especially, there was something really specific that I think you kind of introduced to like modern soul music, which was like being able to be sarcastic, ironic, and like having like a punchline. And that was the thing that I felt even more than anything that she embodied, like the idea that with her songs like fuckery and like, if there hadn't been a badooism, I don't think that maybe Amy might have sung like, you made me miss the Slick Rick gig. <laughs> Among your other many contributions, I thought that that punchline thing was just such a huge... With the Wu-Tang stuff and all of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I hear someone like Amy Winehouse, who is genuinely a, a vessel, you know, she's uh, inspired by something that I've done. That's the same thing that Billy did and Shaka did for me, and yeah, it's just paying it forward. Yeah. It's, It's a good feeling. I think because I was always a comedy geek, like I loved going to your shows because I don't know if I'd say it was as funny as it was musically moving, but that was certainly like a giant part of it on that first tour. It's so crazy to think that now how we get our music from the internet and all this stuff and like you never like go like, I remember the moment I heard that song because we're hearing shit all the time. But I really do remember the moment that I first heard Tyrone and the punchline and you can't use my phone and there was like six of us driving a car and I think it was like on Hot <laughs> Hot 97 because everyone's just saying the song's great and then you kind of had the feeling it was going somewhere and then it just stops and you go you can't use my phone and like someone had to pull the car over like because we were just like high-fiving like I can't like that was such a fucking incredible moment I don't know <laughs> thank you so much that was a freestyle you know, when um, we would be in rehearsal, we would do like this one groove, which was Tyrone, you know, the music. But I was seeing different funny things over it in rehearsal. So I was on stage and my keyboard player, Norman Keys Hertz, starts playing the, the melody from rehearsal. And I was like, OK, you know, and um, called Tyrone uh, was born on that stage. Yeah. And the recording was an actual live recording that went viral. And if there's a such thing as viral for radio at that time, but it just kind of went viral. And uh, I, I ended up recording a studio version of it, which is no match for the yeah. original. But, but. And so was it written in soundcheck? Was it was it like a... Oh, rec- uh, no, it was right there. Okay. It was on, on the spot. On this, Literally on the spot. Like the recording, the live recording is the... That's it. Oh, my God. And the background singers knew what to say. Call! Because they weren't unfamiliar with this thing that we did, but it wasn't always call him. Sometimes it would be stall him, you know, depending on what I'm talking about. So it was a inside joke kind of song, which ironically becomes my most popular hit. Right. Well, also, like, imagine the people that were there on that night. Like, you were there the night in the crowd. Do you remember what city it was, even? I think it was D.C. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to be like, I was there the night that she wrote, recorded, and performed Tyrone. Yeah. And also, I guess you if, if you had to say, like, that's the song, the most zeitgeist of the song, but I would argue that you have, like, a lot of big classic. <laughs> but that's the same thing with why you can reinvent it, like, 
15 years later on the mixtape. Yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm tired of Call Tyrone, but, you know, I understand the, the need for a Call Tyrone in an artist's career. But you kind of like reinvented it too, which was cool as well with the hotline bling. And do you feel like the next thing that you put out, would it be closer to mixtape vibe or, or album? Or do you have any idea? Or you'll just know when it happens. You know, creatively, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. But, you know, I just want to make sure that I, I get the best deal for what I'm doing. You know what I mean? As a company as well, I just have to make sure that, you know, it's the right decision to make. I love doing albums. I love it. It just seems like the day of that is gone. It left with the album cover. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You know, I, I do like making them, but I can't seem to put one together. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to Think Twice as well. Like, the only reason that people know Think Twice really is like, it's not like it was a big hit. Mm -hmm. It was just the fact that it was like a DJ record because it was sampled by Tribe. That's right. Been looking at the front door. And that's why we know Think Twice. It was one of those break beats, like Rock Creek Park or something. But the fact that you covered it, like, that's the thing that I was saying, the DJ mentality, the way you make records is just like... Right. There are a few, like, staple songs in hip hop that are kind of like a classic song that artists want to touch. Like, okay, I want to touch the Eddie Kendrick sample, you know. I want to touch the looking at the front door sample, you know, main source. You know, you look at all the people who who did it and what they did, you know. My people from Eddie Kendrick's Dilla and Kareem Riggins and so many other people did their interpolations of it, and I just wanted to. Same thing with Love of My Life, when um, Common had the first one and The Roots did the second one. Act two, and then I did the third one, Love of My Life. So it's kind of like a hip-hop thing, uh, call and response or another form of communication. Are you playing shows again now? Or are you about to go out back on the road? or are you? I mean, I guess you've obviously missed it the past year. Yeah, everything in 2020 was postponed to this year, so it starts back up in, we're in May, yeah, end of May. You must be excited to go back. No. No? <laughs> I just assumed because you said you tore eight months of the year that like that's for some people it's like their life but performing out. In it was some... my, you know, it definitely was my life, but I didn't know that how tired I was. Yeah. You know, I missed my whole childhood. Yeah. You know, it just, everything happened so quick. Yeah. So I kind of like um, still Erica right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I love performing as well. So I'll go out, but I'm really enjoying still Erica. Yeah, I remember like in the peak of the pandemic, like when it got, like you said, still, I was like, oh, I guess this is my life now. And if I never go back into another session or have to travel again, that's cool. And I'll I'll figure it out. And yeah, I kind of got into it. And then the last month, life has been real life has been open back and like just like coming out for a couple of days to do a session. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I guess. I think maybe I thought that I was just going to not be able to make music with people anymore. And then as you start Mm. to think more about that, you start to doubt your own talent anyway. And you're like, cool. Well, then it makes sense to move on because I'm old and I shouldn't be making music with people. But I guess this past few weeks, I've suddenly realized like, okay, I guess life is going to go a little bit back to the way it was. You never know what's going to inspire you. You know, it's kind of like in the last relationship after the breakup, you're thinking, I'm never going to fall for this in love thing again, or I'm never going to get the kind of inspiration that drives me to create some music and have the hunger for it. But it does come. It comes back. Yeah. You know, and 
writer's block is it's not a real thing to me. It's kind of like when I'm not inspired to do something and I'm a little frustrated about it, I consider it downloading period, you know, the time when you're living and learning and growing and hurting and happy and moving. And then it gets so full that it just, all the creativity starts to come out of every orifice. Yeah. If you're patient, it's no age limit or no time limit or it happens. I know. I was actually fucking terrified on Tuesday when I was like going to my first session of the year. I was working with Lizzo out here and I was like, mm-hmm. nothing's going to come out. Oh, well, at least if I go four hours earlier, I'll get a couple like things or try and remember how the fucking keyboard and the drum machine work. And then <laughs> like always it does come back a little and, and then you're like, okay, yeah, exactly. I'm back on the bike. Yeah, Lizzo and you are a great pairing. I couldn't have done it better. Um. Well, let's see. I don't know if she likes me yet, but at least I've figured out how to... She will. Also, because you mentioned Rashad, and I know you and Rashad work together, and I've seen, you know, the last couple of times I've seen Rashad's... I mean, he's produced three of, like, maybe even more of the most, like, epic all-time hip-hop records, right? There's One More Chance. Yeah. Woo-ha. Mm-hmm. Like, some of the biggest club bangers of, like, our entire lifetime. He's such a... And I do feel like he's a little bit, you know, sometimes... Unsung. What's he working on right now? Is he working with you? Yeah, we work together all the time. We toured together for 15 years. It was our life together on the road. We would have to have a studio on the bus, basically, to have room to facilitate all of the creativity. But he's always working on music. I think he's working on a a reggae album right now. But he has the best drums in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I met him, I was like 19 and I was just so gassed because like that was just when I started DJing. He had the biggest songs in the world. Yeah, man. And I mean, I actually only know what the word doula is because of you. Like obviously now it's become a a bit more of an understood thing. But were you still practicing before the pandemic or are you still? Absolutely. I had two moms this year already. Yeah. Yeah. Always. I mean, it doesn't stop. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was just curious because the protocol and everything, like, because doula and the delivery of a child naturally seems even more, for lack of a better word, hands-on than going to a hospital. So I just was wondering in the pandemic and all that kind of stuff, if that stuff oh, yeah. still. Yeah, the, the couple of moms I assisted this year had their births at home. So it was uh, very easy and comfortable. Also, but what am I even saying? Because so many people have babies. Like, I feel like I know more people that have babies during the <laughs> pandemic than like any other time. Yes. Yes, there's nothing else to do. In fact, you said that in the 2016 interview, you said that your first delivery, was it for Stick from Dead Prez? It was his wife and son. F- son. It was 54 yeah. hours of labor. Yeah, it was my main inspiration for knowing that I would be good at being the welcoming committee. It was my girlfriend, Afia, who sticks wife, and she went into labor, and I flew to where she was. And I was not a doula. I was just her friend. But I ended up, after it was all done, sitting with her 52 hours, never sleeping and understanding. I had just had my son two years earlier, and um, it just came very natural to me. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good to make the room calm and to make sure that the mother is getting the right amount of nutrients and minerals and enough sun and exercise and that she's communicating well with her partner and that 
she's reading the materials that are going to alleviate her fears and that she's meditating if she chooses and all those things are very essential in bringing a life. Yeah. And have you trained other people? Because like I said, like, I think you really actually brought that word a little bit into the forefront. Like, I, I think you caused a lot of people basically to look up the word doula anyway. Right, so right. did you end up training or kind of like, do you have people that now like practice under you? No, I don't. You just do it. Yeah, I'm just Dr. Quinn, medicine woman by myself. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. no, not yet. Downloading. I love the way she used that expression. It's so smart, so very badu in its nature. The idea that there's no such thing as writer's block, right? You're just writing or you're not. And in between, you're downloading life, ingesting emotions and experience, absorbing all the things that will enable us to spin that energy into music. I've experienced writer's block hundreds of times. I've witnessed it even more, producing records for artists who can't get past a single verse. It happens to everyone. But you figure out how to overcome it, and not let it overcome you. I remember watching Simon Le Bon of Duran Duran stare at a blank page for five hours straight, ready to tear his hair out. And I grabbed him and said, come on, we're gonna go look at some paintings at the Tate Museum. I even have to go produce records for three or four people in between my own because I need that downloading. I need that outside inspo. It's like filling the tank with other people's energy, other people's inspiration. Then I can figure out what I want to say. But she never seems to let anything phase her. And she knows the songs will come when she needs it. Enjoy your life. Sometimes we're just downloading. I think in the uh, in that article as well, Puma was maybe 11 and you said she was, was she doing some music? Like are any of her children making music? Yeah. Yeah, Puma's an amazing singer. She's uh, She has perfect pitch. She's definitely an improvement on my design in many, many ways. She's going to do whatever she wants to do. Yeah. And do it well. Uh, so, yeah, she's a singer. And Mars is a dancer. Amazing isolation. Seven's still, he's a student. He's still in school. But, yeah, it's Puma, I think, for music right now, if I had to predict I actually just remember one of the funniest things I've ever heard somebody say. We were in England. I don't know if you remember. We were or somewhere rehearsing. We played like one or two shows together around that movie thing. And everyone knows like the English newspapers are like the trashiest thing ever. And <laughs> you were like kind of like just bored in like one of those like rehearsal rooms reading the paper. And you like had your nose buried. And I was like, I can't imagine there could be anything in it possibly that good. And you're kind of like reading the paper. And then you just look up for a second and you go, my baby daddy's a pimp. He's uh, broken up the Rothschilds. And then you just go <laughs> back into the paper. Because um, I guess that scandal, whatever, was like around at the time. And it was just like you didn't say anything for 10 minutes and just looked up and said that. It was, it was fucking classic. <laughs> I mean, I found out when you found out. Yeah. Yeah. And then that other amazing... I mean, I'm sure you've done David Letterman a lot of times, but yeah. I've watched back a couple of times that performance. And that was the most excited I ever saw David Letterman, like jump off the couch, like because you <laughs> gave such a great performance. We did that song with Sig and because I was such a fan of David Letterman, he comes up, he goes, that's how you do it right there. That's how you do it. And he put his arm around you. Yeah, I remember that. 
I remember that. It, it was the ensemble. It was everything yeah. together that day. Just us. That was cool. That red jacket. I had a red jacket on. Yeah, yes. I did. I had a red jacket. I felt underdressed and insecure the whole performance. Oh, you looked fucking incredible. <laughs> I'd love if there's anything that you wanted to talk about. Obviously, I'm a pretty novice interviewer, but... Uh... <laughs> no, you're doing great. What you into right now? I mean, like, um, hobbies. Um, well, I just got engaged. Okay. Actually, I was on the way here and uh, we were listening to Worldwide Underground. Or maybe we're listening to the mixtape, You Can't Call My Phone, and my my fiancé was in, like, the passenger seat. And, you know, we've only been together seven months, and she's a little younger than me, so, like, I'm always surprised when there's, like, a song that I love that she knows the lyrics. But she actually Mm -hmm. knew way more of the lyrics to You Can't Call My Phone. Like, I knew all the words to, like, Worldwide Underground (laughs) and, like, Baduism, and she's just singing, like, every single turn of phrase. She's a massive fan of yours. (laughs) That's dope. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. Hobbies, I don't know. I'm just like getting back into, I'm just getting my confidence back making music again and stuff like that. Yeah. I, f- I feel you. I'm um, picking up new instruments and trying new creative things on my body canvas and makeup and just trying to be really creative. And uh, my daughters are very inspirational in that area. Yeah. For me, any new hobbies? Uh, oh, I'm training for the uh, 2028 Olympics. What event? Hurdles. Hurdles. Okay, this is really a breaking story that we've got. You've given us something. <laughs> this is TMZ. This is good. I'm tired of just procrastinating. I always wanted to do it. It's time to go. There's a 100-meter hurdles and a 400-meter hurdles. I want to train for the 440 hurdles and the 110 hurdle straight away. Okay. The sprint, yeah. 2028, so you're giving yourself seven years. I think you're going to... I don't even know if 2028 is when the Olympics is. I say if you say that there's going to be hurdles <laughs> in 2028, we, alongside the fader, can make it happen. I can guarantee you that it's going to be hurdles in 2028. Were you a good athlete? and uh, Were you an athlete at all, in, or were you just into music? I did track and field, and last time was eighth grade because I ended up going to a school of arts. Yeah. In high school, 9 through 12. But I did sports when I was in junior high, and I thought I was pretty good. Yeah. I had the will for it. I was very uncoordinated. That's why as soon as you said the hurdles, I just pictured myself doing it. I actually ran the wrong <laughs> I ran the wrong way in the relay race at sports day, like in sixth grade. I, I don't believe that. I, no, they called me wrong way Ronson <laughs> for two years. Honestly, the coach was like, every time I come in like the, into PE, he'd be like, all right, wrong way Ronson. That was... Uh... <laughs> One time I peed on myself right before the gun went off. Yeah, I was really nervous because I was racing. It was a sprint and I was racing a girl who was really fast. And uh, I was so nervous. I was shaking. You know how you'd be trying to stiffen all of your muscles and your butt and knees and everything so you don't pee? Yeah. Well, I could. There's nothing I could do. (laughs) I just peed on myself and ran second place, a pissy second place. What's more terrifying than like, being in competition when you're like under the age of 16, whether it's like a piano recital or like a track meet, it's it's almost terrible that we put kids through anything like that. Like how could it be anything but scarring? It really is. I have a lot to say about that. Not today, but yeah. 
competing is is maybe not the best thing. And but what do you do if your like kid says like, "Hey, mom, I want to be in the singing thing." Like, of course you have to like give them. Well, the- I mean, you know, my kids are pretty hip. They know the consequences of their choices and judgments. You can set yourself up for, you know, some stuff and just be prepared for it. And if you feel like you know you're a winner already, then you're a good candidate for a competition. If you think this is going to ruin your life, if you um, lose, then no, uh, you don't need to do it. Do you still get nervous in that like? split second before you walk out onto the stage at shows or is it just so yes right every time i have to pee right before the gun yeah i'm nervous yeah and then i kind of hope that people don't see the trembling yeah and then it kind of just trickles away once i close my eyes and whatever takes over takes over is it like the first song or second song in and then it's suddenly like you're like okay depends on the audience sometimes the energy is so overwhelmingly warm from them that before you hit the first note you're comfy already yeah sometimes it's a little different you know and it depends on what week of the month it is for me right also in that interview it says something very specific like the bands all hang out and everybody's kind of jamming but like the minute you come in the door everybody's suddenly like oh and it's like a very professional atmosphere <laughs> did i read that correctly or am i making that up I, my old band was like that, definitely. Right. Yeah, I do remember one of the hood legends being that I'm very intimidating and you're not supposed to look me in the eyes and all that kind of stuff. But I'm a hard task master on stage, for real, though. You know? Like finding, like the James Brown, like... No, I, I slap. <laughs> slap the musicians. Slap the musicians. Yeah, it's not finding. It's not going to do anything. Yeah. Not for that moment, like right in the moment. You know, you just slap them right there while they're right there. <laughs> I can't tell if you're joking, but I hope you're not because I just love it. Like you just going back behind the drum rides and just being like. Whoop. No, I'll do it right. I do it right where they at. Right. If they sing in background and they're in the middle, the other two better step to the side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, slapping is good. Yeah. Especially on stage. It kind of like brings out the energy. And another thing, you have to make sure that everybody's the same amount of drunk. All the musicians. Yeah. They don't feel the slap. I forgot to tell you that part. They don't feel it. They're drunk. Okay. Full face is numb. So long as we all the same amount of drunk and on the one, the show's great. I used to get really drunk on stage, even DJing. And then I just realized, (laughs) well, I did. And then I just realized I was doing it partly for nerves. And then, you know, if you're drinking consistently through a two-hour set, two-and-a-half-hour set, then there's a good chance the last half an hour is going to be like a little sloppy or something, right? It's true. I stopped because I just... And I remember the first sets of not drinking were like... It felt like I walked into a school classroom and like someone had turned all the lights on and you're just standing there naked. But I... Yeah. <laughs> that was just something I needed to like move past, obviously. I mean, I never really drank on stage. I was kidding. Or before a show. I'll take a shot with the band after, like a, eh, yeah. you know, but I never drink on stage or any of that stuff. Yeah. Kind of want to be very there for the connection, the performance. I remember seeing you and D'Angelo, I think it must have been at like the Universal Amphitheater or whatever that place is called on the, on the first album. And I remember I had never mm-hmm. seen anybody drink tea on stage before. And that mm-hmm. was like a thing. That was pretty amazing. Yeah, I need it. After a minute. I don't warm up or anything. So my warm up is the first or second song. Yeah. And the tea kind of helps to get me ready. 
Miguel, I'm in the studio apparently. Um, there, everyone's like, this is Miguel's Manuka honey. You can have oh. some if you want. Oh, do you like Man okay. You do like Manuka honey? That's like singers make a big fuss over that. I've never had Manuka honey. How does it work for you? Really? Oh, it's a... Yeah. Uh, I think it's just sort of a fancy honey, but it's told to have a lot of healing properties. And, um, I'm sure. And singers love it for the coat. I'm really surprised you never heard it because I think of you as like knowing about every single like thing like that. Yeah, I don't eat honey though. Okay. It's the only thing. Yeah. Too, too much sugar? Yeah, and I think it's the bees. Right. You know, they, they might need it for something. They go through all the trouble. That's true. Do you mind if I ask you, are you vegan? Um, I eat like a vegan. I don't belong to any type of organization. And I'm not trying to win a war for being <laughs> the best vegetarian. Right. But I am a holistic electric foodist, meaning I don't eat sugar or dairy or meats or try not to eat processed foods as much as possible. I eat mostly raw food as yeah. a diet. Yeah. What about you? I try to eat pretty healthy because, you know, I'd exercise and do all this stuff. So I look like I'm in good shape, but apparently I just went and had my medical and like I had like super high cholesterol and all these things. I was like, oh, okay, so just because I look like I'm not about to die, that doesn't mean that the insides are not about. So I had yeah. to actually fix and change a lot of things. Oh, and and that's, that's actually really good. I think it's good. You know, you're in a good place. You've already decided that you need to do something. So. Yeah. It was a real wake-up call as well, though, because I've just always been like, oh, I'm skinny, like, whatever. I'm, I'm sure I'll be fine. <laughs> and then uh, as the doctor was like, uh, no, and go get a colonoscopy. So I was like, okay. Oh, wow. You know, you only need five doctors. If you have these five doctors and subscribe to them, you won't need any other ones. Dr. Sun, you just need about 15 minutes. Okay. Vitamin D, very, very good for the skin and the fascia you know, the layer under the skin. And then you need doctor exercise, 15 minutes. Just walk or run or jump or do something, sex, whatever you need, 15 minutes a day. Uh, keep the blood flowing, uh, heart rate going. Then you need doctor nutrition. You have to eat the right foods. I mean, and there's such a controversy about what's good for you and what's not good for you, but I recommend eating for your blood type, you know. You can find out what your blood type is and you can look it up. They'll have a whole diet for you, you know, according to your DNA. You know, what you can digest according to how much stomach acid your ancestors have in yeah. your lining. Yeah. Yeah. So some people can do meat good, some people can't. Yeah. So you got sun, exercise, nutrition, doctor sleep. Sleeping at a certain amount of time for a certain amount of time helps the pineal gland to release the hormones that help you maintain your vital body from, from moment yeah. to moment. Uh, it's an oil that releases and it only releases between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. So it's actually about sleeping at those times, not just how much sleep you get. Yes, because it helps to reset the circadian rhythm. Okay. It's the rhythm everything is on. Like the birds all wake up at a certain time for a reason, you know, the, everything is on a clock and we are on the same clock, but we just kind of get off. And once we get off that clock, that's when we start having depression and, you know, tiredness and crankiness and other things. 
it's crazy because like we associate so much of like the folklore and like musicians and like it's the late night and it's the witching hour when you create and Prince would stay up all night doing these things and and it's right. it's sort of like it's very counter to what you're talking about about actually staying yeah healthy. I guess the answer is balance. You know, once you you know run a marathon of that for six months, then your body automatically is going to want to recalibrate itself and get some rest and start to get the nutrients back and stuff. So we say sun, exercise, nutrients, sleep. And the last one is doctor spirit, you know, some kind of meditation, self-reflection, self-awareness, reconnection, you know, with the source, whatever that may be to you. 15 minutes. Each of these things take 15 minutes per day. You can do them all day long. Dr. Badu, I can do this. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah, the sleep thing I really only realized more recently because, like I said, there's always this mythology around musicians staying up all night and then later you stay up. That's when the good ideas come, which is kind of bullshit. And then I would always pride myself on like, no, I can go like three hours of sleep. And like I wore like a badge of honor. And then I suddenly realized like... <laughs> Where you did ask me what are some tips about your health. Yeah. But tips about making a good album is stay up all night. You know, so I would have told you that, but it's two different, two different things. Yeah. And now I'm just, I want the balance, I think. That's, That's right. That's what you want. You want the balance and you want to eliminate all guilt. You don't want to feel guilty about anything. Eliminate all guilt. Okay. Yeah. You just want to try to, as soon as it comes, pops into your mind, slap it out of there. You know, for a Jew, the eliminating all guilt part is like a little extra because we have to, <laughs> that's just improv, but I, you know, I can work on that. Okay. I'll help you. Yeah. Okay. Hey, my next record is actually a cover of all of my favorite songs that really stayed inside me. Like it has to be a song that's like haunted me so much. It's come back to me multiple times over the last decades. And Other Side of the Game is just one of those songs for me. Like I love so many of your songs, but that one, like, and the message and the melancholy and everything in there is just like, and I, I'm only going to cover it if I think that I can do it in a way that it deserves and respects. And I don't even know, I'm just messing around with that instrumentally what it would be as well now. But I just had to tell you that because I just, you got it. I'm in the middle of doing it right now. I can't wait to hear the Mark Ronson song put. The great Mark Ronson songbook. It's such a personal song, too. I don't know if you ever had to talk about that song when the record came out or it's too personal to talk about, but maybe just because yeah. of my, like, personal fandom. Oh, well, you know, it was it was one of those that didn't come from a personal experience, per se. Okay. But I've seen it so much. The, the dope man's bitch having to kind of wait around, you know, yeah. no matter what. And, um... Uh, the level of commitment and honor between, you know, the two people. And, um, just her, her side of the game. Yeah. Because we heard the other. Yeah. Great. Well, I really, really appreciate you sharing all that and all your time today and your doctorly advice and stories, legendary stories and shit. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Let's do it again. Okay. What about Fader? We didn't talk about that too much. Fader covers. Oh, I was on the flip side of Bjork, the first cover. Oh, yeah. That's a fucking yeah. double bill. Right. I was like, that's my, my, my solar twin. We promised each other that we would save all of our money to buy the first hovercrafts. So. Really? Yeah. 
Do you know Bjork a little bit? Like, I guess you must have kind of come into each other's orbit. A little bit, not much. Yeah. Yeah, not much. She's kind of like me. We were the original social distancers, so. <laughs> and also that, obviously, all those pictures with the shaved head, was that the first time you sort of, like, outed the new look, or had you been doing that? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, on stage I had been, you know, wearing it. But, uh, yeah, for a magazine, it was the first time I had appeared on anything without a head wrap. Yeah. And I was looking through, like, that issue. I don't know if you actually had the physical issue, but it's such a snapshot of time. There's, like, all these things, like, DJ Clue and an Nietzsche ad and academics and things, <laughs> yeah. things that, like, don't even really seem that far in my mind but are, like, another world. Like, that was another era. Yeah, it was another time. Yeah, it was. I'm glad I walked a path in, in musical time with you, though. You know, I know, hope we'll do a lot more. Yeah. So thank you guys for joining us today for Uncovered. And um, we will... It's not even my show. Yes. Awesome. All right, Erica, thanks so much. <laughs> I love you. Love you. Thank you. I love you, Rob Stone. I do realize in some ways we're peers and she's only a few years older than me, but I was still a little shook during that whole interview. Maybe because she's such an intimidating human. Not intimidating like I'm going to beat you up or having a feeling of superiority, but she can't really help it by way of her intelligence, her demeanor, her charm, her coolness, her enlightenedness, etc. It is unnerving to talk to someone who functions on a higher plane like that. I don't think she's a higher life form. I just think she's figured it out a little better than the rest of us. It's hard to remember a time that the music of Erica Badu was not influential in my life. I think many of us feel that way. She's just one of those artists that it's hard to imagine music without. It would also be very hard to imagine doing this Fader Uncovered podcast without getting an opportunity to talk to her. So thank you, Erica, for being with us today. Take me out with the fade. A special fader thank you to our Grammy and Oscar award winning host, Mark Ronson. Please visit thefader.com slash podcast to read the original cover story and check out a playlist of artists mentioned in this episode. If you like the show, please share it and review us on your favorite podcast app. Executive producers Rob Stone and John Cohen. Directed by Daniel Nevetta and produced by The Fader in association with BYT.NYC. Engineered and mixed by David Rogers Berry. Theme music by DJ Premier. For Fader Uncovered merchandise, please visit shop.thefader.com. Thanks, and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>